C.S. Lewis wrote in his uh, really classic book, it's called The Four Loves, he wrote this, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. There'll be no safe investment of our hearts, our lives. See, whatever you live for, whatever you love and devote yourselves to, will at some point hurt to some degree. That's what Lewis's point there is. And that is the way that we've been beautifully created. We put ourselves in positions of vulnerability, giving of ourselves, because the alternative is, well, it's absolutely tragic. And it's true whether you're at work, whether that's in, in a friendship or a relationship. And, and it is ultimately true as you live and you love for God. And as the title suggests that I've put down of the talk, this is kind of what the passage is all about. It's about living for God and what that realistically will look like and what it means for each one of us. So what does living for God look like? Well, just think back to some of what we've learned in 1 Peter so far. He's encouraged his readers to live uh, good lives, chapter 2 verse 12, mentioned it already, contributing to society, not isolated but integrated into society but without compromise. Integrated into culture that may be quite hostile. You've heard some of that today already in chapter 4. Even dangerous. The Christians will therefore be aliens, strangers and living in this tension between accusation on the one hand but also appreciation on the other. There will also be kind of rejection, but there will also be acceptance. And that tension is ultimately known as Christians, as we live in the world now, but look forward to the glory to come. A world now where we may face some suffering, but there's all this perfect glory to come. That, that kind of tension is key throughout the whole of this book. It's one of the major themes. And it's right there at the beginning of the letter, isn't it? You want to flick back, you can, to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. You'll see there that in, in the eyes of God, that the Christian there is viewed as one who is chosen, elect, loved, infinitely by God. But yet in the eyes of the world, how is the Christian viewed? As a scattered alien. Therefore, you see, the Christian life the, the, and the Christian mind is radically different. It is focused. It, it kind of is most at home. It lives for the not yet. All that glory to come. So Christians, we live in the now, today, in the culture around us, in the world that we live in. 
but we are not home home as we described the other day. Uh, we're longing for the glory to come. And can you therefore see why being a Christian is such a different life? Because Christians are being called by God not to live secular lives. A secularist basically focuses on today. What pleasure, what ease they can get from today. God is calling Christians to live lives defined by the day. Not today, but the day, the final day. The judgment to come, where the end of this world, if you like, happens and eternity begins. And Peter is calling these Christians in Asia Minor to to go through the the suffering that they're experiencing in this life because it will be far outweighed by the glory that is to come. And so it is, as we live ordinary good lives in the now, that the eternal life established and defined by the cross is made clear and attractive to the world through us, as we live as aliens and strangers. You see, that is God's greatest strategy for turning what is a secular world, focused on today, of turning it completely upside down. It is that living, that living now, and the reason that we are living now, that is the gospel that underpins it all, the looking ahead of what's to come, that Peter is turning to now in chapter 4. And Peter shows us that living by the will of God, living for the glory of God, if you like, today in this life, it requires many changes for us, many distinctive attributes in our heart, our mind, our lives. Look at them. I've put them down in our points, in our thinking, our lifestyle, our heart, and our ambitions. Firstly, then, let's dive into uh, our first point, verse 1 and 2. Living by the will of God requires a decisive change of thinking. Our thinking, our minds. You see, there is one imperative in the passage. You notice it in verse 1. Have a look down if you can. One instruction from Peter. What does he say? He says, arm yourselves. If we are to live for the will of God, as Peter mentions at the end of verse 2, and that's pretty much the, kind of the, the, the key verse, key, key section in this whole passage. What do we need to do? The instruction is, Arm yourselves. And immediately when you hear something like that, which literally means to gather arms, you think weaponry. I'm watching Homeland at the moment with Sarah, so I'm thinking weaponry and CIA guns all the time. But there we go. You know, I was lost. I should have been a CIA agent. That would have been great. But there we go. Yeah. But here we are. It's take arms. We think weaponry. But in the way of Christ, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You see, that is, we arm ourselves in how we think. We're to have, as it says, the same attitude as that of Christ. To think as Christ did about, well, what's all the context been about? Well, it's been obedience and suffering. That's what this, this passage has been kind of leading up to. Peter, throughout the letter, has been building this argument. Obedient suffering has been put forward as an example again and again of Christ for his followers. You think back to chapter 2, have a look at it if you want, verse 22 and following. That wonderful passage focusing really, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. 
Chapter 3, verse 14, it's there as well, again. But really since chapter 3, verse 18, Peter has been going showing the value of imitating Christ's example, suffering obediently. His uh, example, uh, his, his willingness to suffer in his body for sin in order to do God's will is, is our calling too. Now, though the emphasis shifts a little, the willingness is now to suffer in order to do what is right. As you see in verse 1, have a look at it. It goes as far as saying as the one who takes on this attitude of Christ, that is obedience to suffering. Look what it says at the end of verse 1. It says, is done with sin. We'll come back to that because it's pretty extraordinary. But let's look at these verses a little bit more closely. Notice it actually begins, uh, in the original, it actually begins with Christ. The word Christ is kind of third word in our translations. But it says Christ suffers in his body. It's an emphatic Christ, if you like. The, The implication being that if that happens to Christ, then this should also be the expected by his followers. What are are we to do? We're to arm ourselves. Take on that same attitude. That is, not avoid the difficulties. And there will be if we follow Christ. That is is the way of following him. Expect it. (coughs) Suffering for doing good. So we don't avoid those difficult conversations when we know they're heading that way. Oh yeah, yeah, I was going to invite you, but I'm just going to run. I've got to go. You know how you feel. The Apostles' Creed, I've put it on your sheets. If you'd like to, to turn to it, it's, um, I put them on the, on the inside flap there. It says just congregational prayers. I thought I'd put these down just for us to take home each week from now on. But the Apostles' Creed points it out as well, just the, the kind of the example of Christ. It's a great summary of the doctrines uh, of the Bible and the church. Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's the way of Christ. It's the way of Christians, Christ's followers. I guess at this stage, you might want to kind of go, well, I might want to reassess following Christ at this stage. You know, if this is the path of Christ and the path of the Christian, the follower of Christ, doesn't quite look so appealing anymore, does it? Or does it? And here we come to the end of verse 1. It's pretty extraordinary, doesn't it? Because it, it does appeal. He who suffered in his body is done with sin. We kind of got a clue what this means already. If you flip back to chapter 2, verse 24, you see there, he himself bore our, sin, uh, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. It's been clues of this already, but what's he kind of meaning? Well, I think he's saying now in chapter 4, verse 1, that, that, that living for sinful desires, living that way, being driven by them, he's saying that way's done, God. You've got the Spirit of God in your hearts now. There's a new way of living. And you're done to sin. That is, you have the ability. If you've got the Spirit in your heart, you've got the ability to say no. You're done with sin and it's controlling power. These verses are extraordinary, aren't they? And Peter is saying that our suffering, you see how he's linked the two together, our suffering for good, for for the sake of Christ, leads to that, to being done with sin. 
And this is the way that God uses and transforms and refines us and stops us being so self-serving. Therefore, Peter is saying that, that suffering for good, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that is way better than being able to, to purchase anything that, or, or to do anything for ease and pleasure today. Because the end result of being done with sin is to become more like Christ. So how does this work? Because it does seem slightly perverse, doesn't it? A little bit strange. I guess the point is that as we suffer for the sake of Christ, God uses that suffering, that trial, that difficulty, because it is in those very dark times of life, isn't it, that we do begin to stop serving ourselves and we do begin to cling to another and trust in another and serve another. Uh, just note here, Peter is not looking for any of us to suddenly start beating ourselves up. Oh, let's find a bit of suffering so we can be done with sin. No, that is not what he's pointing us toward here. You could break every bone in your body and, and still sin, couldn't you? Because <laughs> that just deals with the physical aspect. It was actually early Christian monks used to kind of self-flagellate. They used to hit themselves, thinking that that might purge them, if you like, of their sin. It just doesn't work like that. Because Jesus' teaching on sin just goes so much deeper, doesn't it? It says the big problem is our hearts. See, suffering for Christ works on a heart level. Because much of the sin that, that you and I kind of engage in, it's usually, isn't it, when we're trying to find pleasure. We're trying to find the easy way in life today. Now, whether that's drink or kind of relationship sex stuff, you know, that's the way we usually find ourselves in sin, isn't it? So what happens when we give up those pleasures or are taken from those pleasures that sin, if you like, from, uh, taken away from them, whether that's through suffering or just removed from them. Whether we renounce uh, kind of serving ourselves or through suffering, we cannot serve those kind of sinful desires. Well, what happens? That desire is taken from us. And where is the allure of sin then? It's just been removed. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And I think Peter knows what he's talking about here. I mean, he, he renounced Jesus uh, uh, and denied him three times. He'd been in prison later, prayed for in prison, miraculously kind of escaped prison. And what happened as a result of all that suffering and of that trial? Well, you see Peter at the end of the book of Acts, and sin has lost its grip on him. <laughs> He's just utterly transformed through that suffering. And he's all out for Jesus, isn't he? He wants to proclaim Jesus. He doesn't care what is going to happen to him. Now we're to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ has exemplified. Because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, summarised it this way in his commentary. He wrote this, The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. An expectation of suffering there. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be one of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit amongst roses and lilies. Not with the bad people, but with devout people. 
Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you were doing, who would ever have been spared? So in this world, we Christians will have many trials. It's just part of being a Christian. And Peter says, as a result, arm yourselves. Because God will use the trials that you go through. As, and as we do, as we go through those difficult times, that suffering, he will begin to refine us, that we will be done with sin. He will kill those prejudices and, and those things that make us proud and those sinful desires. Arm yourselves. I, I suppose it's good to note in here, because, because it could get a little depressing, you know, it, note that the trials are brief and momentary. Suffering now, glory to come, eternally. So like Christ in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So firstly, living by the will of God, it requires a decisive change of thinking. And secondly, it requires, look at your sheets there, a decisive change of lifestyle. There are two um, patterns of life, aren't they, contrasted in verse 3, kind of throughout the the rest of this little section to verse 11. And uh, there's the Christian lifestyle, and as Peter puts it, there's the pagan lifestyle, the non-Christian lifestyle. Okay? And the contrast goes throughout. Look at verse 3 there. You'll see it there. He, sent, he says, you spent long enough living like that, turning towards the kind of the non-Christian way of living. So what he does then, he, he throws out a, a different way of living for the Christian, living for God, by the will of God. So you'll see in verse 7, if you look down there, there's sober, clear-headedness there. So that we can pray. That's the purpose of it. Instead of the drunkenness of the earlier verses. There's, there's love, not lust in, in kind of verse 8. You see the contrast there. There's hospitality in verse 9, not the orgies of the, the few verses before. And then kind of verse 9 to 11, you get kind of ministry to other people within the church. You know, serving and of speech. And that is to, for the other person's benefit. Rather than the exploitation of the other person. You see the difference in the contrast? You see Peter's pointing two different ways of living. But you might look at that and you think, well, that's a bit kind of black and white, isn't it? Uh, it's, a, it's kind of like kind of painting the world outside, you know, as this really grim, horrible, nasty, nasty place. But is it like that? Well, I kind of want to say yes and no, really. Because we live in quite a morally upright society, don't we? Britain has for many, many centuries now lived in a kind of Christianized culture, our, our law, our ethics are pretty framed around biblical law and biblical ethics. And therefore, you will know and probably have many friends who are very morally upright kind of guys. They're good chaps. They benefit society. They're lovely. They're charming when you invite them around for dinner. But the lifestyles that Peter puts forward here, I think they're quite recognizable, aren't they? And I think they're recognisable in every single one of us. The two ways I think they're recognisable in all of us. We've got a bit of both, haven't we? But the Christians saved through faith, through faith in Jesus' death on the cross, I guess we, we would hope we'd have more love, more hospitality, uh, more ministry to serve others, purely in response to what Christ has done for us. Now there's plenty of evidence actually in history uh, that... 
as Peter was writing to the Christians in Asia Minor, their reluctance to engage in society in the ways that are mentioned here in kind of verse 3, where, you know, as the pagans choose to do, debauchery, lust and drunkenness. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that when Christians didn't choose to engage in society like that, there was a lot of persecution, a lot of scorn, a lot of shame. You didn't go to the pub that night, you didn't get drunk. Oh, you know, and they've got a lot of, lot of persecution. People think it's strange, verse 4. When you choose one way of life rather than the other way of life, you, that resonates with you, doesn't it? People think you strange. It was true then, and it is very true today. The pressure to conform is massive, isn't it? To go for the extra drink, to sleep with a flirtatious colleague. And Peter is saying the temptations are there, but living for the will of God, it requires change in our lives. It's not a change that will save us. No, of course not. But it is a change that will set us free. Uh, To be free to live for God and his good and perfect will. I think what Peter is saying is don't try and live in two worlds with two lifestyles. It is a painful, kind of wrenching life as you try and dip your toe into that and then in that one. It just rips you apart. You're pulled in two completely different directions. (coughs) We're always to be aliens. We're always to be strangers. Serving the will of God today in this world, supported by the church. Living such good lives, chapter 2, verse 12, as we said, it requires a distinctive change in our, well, we've seen already, in our hearts, and now in our lifestyles, in our minds, sorry, now our lifestyles. Because we're, well, we're trying to be distinctive for a distinctive saviour. The Lord Jesus, who is willing to go through suffering for our glory. How do we apply this? I mean, why bother? It's such a different lifestyle, isn't it? Why bother with this? I was thinking about this as a kind of an application, really. Do you ever look back at some of your old friends? You know, probably university friends, maybe friends from your first kind of job, that kind of thing. Do you ever look back at them and ponder what might have been had you lived the distinctive life that God is calling to you here to, to live? What might have been? I think of some of my uni friends and think of the opportunities I missed. And, you know, I meet up with these people sometimes and it just makes me weep. It's awful. The silence that I, I maintained when they asked me a question about my faith. The silence I kept when I said, what did you do on Sunday morning? Awful. I had so many chances to demonstrate Christ-like living of this distinctive living for a distinctive saviour. Well, a decisive change of lifestyle will always bring about a decisive change of opportunity, which is why Peter encourages us in this decisive change. So living by the will of God requires a decisive change of thinking, arm yourselves, it requires a decisive change of lifestyle. And thirdly, it requires a decisive change of our hearts. 
Let's look at those uh, verses very quickly, kind of walk through them. Verse 5 makes the point that if you go the other way, if you live against God, if you ignore God, the way that avoids confrontation with the world, the way that avoids sufferings that may come for following Christ, if we go that way, the way of compromise, remember, it is a way of confrontation with God. The sin of verse 1. The evil human desires of verse 2. The flood of dissipation. What a great phrase that is in verse 4. People believe doing all these things will satisfy their desires, but they are just mere tastes of the desires and the passions that we've been designed to enjoy for eternity with God. And what Peter's saying here is that there needs to be a change of attitude in our lifestyles, but that begins, it begins where? In our hearts. So Peter warns us not to turn away from God in our hearts because this is where it all begins. The solemn warning of verse 5 is to help our hearts. It's kind of give us a bit of a jolt, really. Peter shows us that the final judgment of each of us will not be what your peers think of you, what your work colleagues think of you, what the people think of you when you go to the gym. That doesn't, that doesn't matter at all. It's what God thinks of you in Christ. That matters the most. The final judgment will be God's judgment on everyone. And it will include those who judge you now. For your distinctive Christ-like lifestyle. So Christians, we are to ignore those who think us strange. But we must not ignore God. Because his judgment is eternal. Also, don't be surprised when your friends, they, they completely miss this truth. They'll just say, oh, you know, I, I don't want to know that. I don't want to hear that there's a kind of a judge, a final date. Yeah, no, because as we've already been told in chapter 2, that they've rejected Christ. The, the builders had rejected the stone that is Christ, the cornerstone. Now, turn to verse 6. It can be very, very confusing, I think. But Peter is using here the same pairing as he's doing throughout the letter, of that of suffering and glory. <coughs> the very reason the gospel has been preached to those Christians who have now died is so that even though they did die according to body, and that could have been through persecution, we don't know that, but it could have been. Even though they did die according to body, that, that even so they might live to God in the spirit because they'd heard and accepted the gospel. That's the point there. This is the path to life. We die to sin, but God puts his unstoppable love in us. How does this happen? Verse 6, it's very plain, through the gospel. It is through the proclamation of the good news that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to defeat death. So there needs to be a change of heart to live in the light of the judgment to come. There needs to be a change of heart to live in the light of the gospel that has saved us through faith. Let's summarise here. Do you see what Peter's doing in these verses? I guess what he's doing is he's trying to make sense of life today by putting, if you like, two immovable, undeniable historical markers down for each of us. And Peter's saying, you can't make sense of life right now, going to work tomorrow morning on the tube, whatever you do, you can't make sense of life. You can't work it out unless you know where you've come from, unless you know where you're going to or heading to. 
And what secularism has done, I kind of, it's kind of convinced Westerners, certainly in our world, that there's no creator, that there's no creation, and Jesus is not coming to judge. And it's a very, very effective piece of work by the devil, isn't it? It just, secularists, what most people think, just, let's just focus on the day. Maybe a few, ten years back and ten years in front, but no more. And they're very movable as well. So what is life about now? Well, for most people, it's about what we can do and get now. Can we just get up a little bit further on the housing market? Can we do this and, and can we do that? Can we save? Can we do this holiday? Whatever, and buy that car. But we're coming from somewhere and going towards somewhere. And you see how Peter puts them in these, in these middle verses, but throughout this passage as well. In, chapter, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he presents the cross of Christ. That eternal life is brought there. And in verse 7, the judgment of Christ comes in. The day of reckoning is there. These two kind of frames that kind of beginning and end of our lives, if you like, as Christians. And Peter is pointing back to the cross which redeemed us from that old way of life. He's saying, now you want to live for, for Christ. Live for him, his way. I guess the point is, he's, he's trying to say, stop focusing so much on today. And start remembering where you've come from, where your life has been bought on the cross. And where you're heading to, face to face with God at judgment. And we need to be reminding each other of those two things. Cross and judgment. Oh, God thinks this life really, really matters. And how we live for him in this life really, really matters. But it must be framed by cross and judgment. We need to have a complete change of thinking. To live in the, in the reality of this world. Because so many people out there are just blurred to the reality that they have a, there's a beginning point and an end point. Peter's not trying to alarm us, kind of like, ooh, kind of spook us out. No, he's trying to say, that is the reality. Christ died, gave you new life, and Christ will come again to judge your life, either according to his righteousness or you're on your own. It's the ultimate reality that so many people are blinding themselves to. That is why I think, just personally, for Christians here, that is why things like quiet times in the morning are so important. Because it frames your day. You've got cross and judgment in your, in your heart and your mind as you go through life in the day. It brings you back to the reality, not of just focusing on that particular day, but looking where you come from and where you're heading to. And sadly, so many people live with no reference to Christ. And the C.S. Lewis put it in that quote at the beginning. He says, they wrap, it, they wrap themselves up carefully with hobbies and little luxuries to avoid all entanglements. They lock themselves up safe in the casket or coffin of their selfishness. But in that, car, uh, that casket, safe, dark, motionless airness, it will change. They're speaking of their hearts. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable and irredeemable. Living by the will of God requires a decisive change of thinking, a decisive change of lifestyle, a decisive change of our hearts. And lastly, and very quickly, requires a decisive change of ambitions. 
I'm going to focus really mainly here on, on verse 11 to finish if I can. Let me just run through verse 9 quickly and verse 10 though. 9 encourages us to demonstrate God's grace in all its various forms. I'd say to that, beans on toast is fine. If you have a look at it, beans on toast is fine. Verse 10 is a reminder that church is not a place of conformity, but it's a place of diversity. And we should rejoice in our differences. We are not here to make Christchurch Earlsville clones. We are to rejoice in our differences and serve one another in those differences. But with our thinking, our lifestyles and our hearts change, so too will our ambitions. And they need to be brought into line with the will of God. But in what ways? There are two ways outlined in verse 11. Have a look at them if you can. Firstly, in our speaking. And secondly, in our serving. I think the context says we're to do both of them with the message and the strength that that God supplies. So that he's saying some of us will speak in churches and, and some of us will serve in churches. And we will all serve each other in different ways. And that's okay. We're all equal in that regard. It doesn't exalt either gift in its priority here at all. So if someone is speaking, they're to speak the words God has given us through his word. And therefore we need confidence in that word. Therefore we need to be encouraging each other to read God's word, to study God's word, to understand God's word, and to rejoice in God's word, and to live by God's word. And if someone is serving, secondly here, we are asked to do what we can when we can, with the strength that God has given us and that only he provides. Why? Well, at the end, it's brilliant, isn't it? So that God may be praised. So that he may get the glory. And it, it revolutionises, doesn't it, as serving at church. When you get here and you kind of think, oh, it's freezing outside, my hands are cold, I've got to lift some stuff, I've got to push some stuff, I've got to be on the rotor again. Oh, no. You know, it kind of, it, you know, it really, really, really helps us, doesn't it? It will transform our lives as we seek to serve others, not ourselves, but seek to serve our Saviour and our Lord. It is a complete change of our ambitions because we walk through the doors And we don't seek to speak or serve for our glory, but we do it for everyone else. And ultimately, at the end of those verses, we do it for the glory and the praise of Christ. (coughs) Living by the will of God requires a decisive change. Look at it, thinking of our lifestyles. Where do you need to change? Some of these things will hit each other, each of us at different places, won't they? So thinking, lifestyle, heart, and our ambitions. I want to conclude. Some words. I found this really helpful this week. I, was, um, I sometimes ch- uh, go back to one chapter in one particular book. It's by J.C. Ryle, and it's in his book, Holiness. And I thought these words summarised quite well, um, perhaps this little passage, and what we need to do. It simply says this, let us take courage. We are not far from home, suffering glory. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent holy man, but it pays. There may be some suffering now, but there's an infinite glory to come. Let's pray that as we live today, 
we are framed by the cross of Christ and the judgment to come and that we will live for the will of God and for the glory of God. Let's pray.